You're listening to the free ad-sponsored re-release of American Elections Wicked Game, a weekly march through every presidential election from 1789 to 2024. To listen to all episodes right now ad-free, go to intohistory.com. Subscribers there enjoy ad-free listening, early access, bonus content, and more from a growing collection of great history podcasts. Start your free trial today at intohistory.com. It's Monday, March 6th, 1797, in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. The sun has set and the streets are quiet. Two men stroll down the sidewalk, newly elected President John Adams and his vice president, Thomas Jefferson. They walk in silence and enjoy a rare moment of peace and quiet, their bellies full with food and drink, their minds racing over the most immediate issue facing Adams' young presidency, U.S. relations with France. After a moment, Adams breaks the silence and asks, how is your conversation with Mr. Madison? Jefferson hesitates for a moment. A few days back, just before his inauguration, Adams informed Jefferson that he would be sending a peace envoy to France to put an end to the ongoing trade war. Adams wanted Madison on the job. Mm, Yes, I told him of your offer. And? Mr. Madison has declined. I see. I did everything I could to convince him. Adams drops the conversation and returns to his thoughts. Jefferson is the leader of the Democratic-Republicans, or as they are often called, the Republicans. He desperately wants a fellow Republican on the peace mission, so he presses the issue. Will you demand Mr. Madison's acquiescence? No, I will not. Perhaps then I might suggest a few alternative candidates. Adams stops walking for a moment and turns very serious. Since last we spoke... Objections have been raised by several friends of my administration. After consulting them in my conscience, I have decided to replace Mr. Madison with someone more suitable. Jefferson bridles. He knows exactly what Adams means by more suitable. He will replace Madison with someone less partisan, or rather, someone less Republican, a Federalist. Before Jefferson has a chance to protest, Adams cuts him off. The peace envoy will happen, Mr. Jefferson, with or without representation from both sides of the Federalist question. Do you understand? Yes, Mr. President. Jefferson bites his tongue. He doesn't say what's truly on his mind. He didn't accept the vice presidency to help Adams further the Federalist agenda. He had high hopes for a bipartisan administration. Now, just a few days into Adams' term, those hopes are dashed. The two men come to a fork in the road on their evening stroll on the corner of Market and Fifth Streets. Adams must go down Market, Jefferson down Fifth. The two men say their goodbyes and part ways, each walking in an opposite direction. Wicked Game is sponsored by NetSuite. There's that saying, that's just the cost of doing business, and it makes it sound like there's nothing you can do about certain expenses. And yeah, sure, if you run a business, there are certain things that are just going to cost what they cost. And recently, they've probably begun costing more. But not everything is just the cost of doing business. Smart companies know their numbers and can reduce their costs. One great way of doing both is switching to NetSuite, the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. And with NetSuite, you'll reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessible from anywhere. 
you know, cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite and you improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move, so do the math and see how you'll profit with NetSuite this year. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash elections. That's netsuite.com slash elections, netsuite.com slash elections. Wicked Game is sponsored by BetterHelp. I need to get something off my chest. Think about that phrase. Visualize it. The metaphor is that something is literally on your chest, weighing you down, pressing down upon you, that when you lay in bed at night, there's a heavy burden bearing down on you. And everyone has these weights, deep concerns, feelings of guilt, anger, or misery we try to keep to ourselves. But therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. And as the world's largest therapy service, BetterHelp has matched 3 million people with professionally licensed and vetted therapists available 100% online. Plus, it's affordable. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to match with a therapist. And if things aren't clicking, you can easily switch to a new therapist anytime. No waiting rooms, no traffic. It couldn't be simpler. So get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com elections today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash elections. From Airship, I'm Lindsey Graham. And this is American Elections Wicked Game. The conversation between Thomas Jefferson and John Adams in early March of 1797 marked a pivotal moment in the friendship of these two political titans. Jefferson wrote that after they parted ways, Adams never after said one word to me on the subject of France or any measures of the government. Adams was a New England Federalist, Jefferson a Southern Republican, but in spite of their political differences, the two men developed a long-standing friendship. Jefferson once wrote to Adams, that you and I differ in our ideas of government is well known, but we have differed as friends should do, respecting the purity of each other's motives and confining our differences of opinion to private conversation. Not long after their famous parting of ways on the corner of Market and Fifth Streets, Jefferson sent word to his friend James Madison. In the letter he wrote, Mr. Adams speaks of me with great friendship and with satisfaction in the prospect of administering the government in concurrence with me. But Jefferson went on to explain to Madison that he was no longer interested in working with Adams. Duty compelled him to resist Adams from the inside and challenge him in the upcoming election. This is Episode 4, 1800 Tiebreaker. In the mid-1790s, the rise of Napoleon drew Britain and France into open war. Federalists like John Adams supported England. Republicans like Thomas Jefferson supported France. Under Washington's presidency, most Americans wanted the U.S. to remain neutral in the conflict, but global turmoil forced the issue. British warships repeatedly violated U.S. sovereignty by seizing American merchant ships and conscripting U.S. sailors into their service. Washington signed a peace agreement with Britain called Jay's Treaty, 
Republicans condemned the treaty, accusing the Federalists of bowing to British rule. In retaliation to the pro-British treaty, the French cut off trade and started attacking American ships. This resulted in a naval conflict between the U.S. and France that would come to be called the Quasi-War. The issue of France haunted Adams' presidency, fractured his cabinet, and set the table for one of the most tumultuous elections in American history. And in the midst of this turmoil, as the parties of Adams and Jefferson vied for supremacy, one young up-and-comer from New York tried to seize the moment and the reins of power. His name was Aaron Burr. It's September 2nd, 1799, just off the island of Manhattan. The sun sets in the western sky as two men dock a small rowboat on the banks of the Hudson River. Aaron Burr, a former senator of New York, and his second, Adonis Burke, a judge from South Carolina. Waiting for them on the banks of Hoboken are Federalist businessman John Barker Church and his appointed second, Abijah Hammond. This gathering in Hoboken is not a peaceful meeting of the minds. It's a violent standoff between two political enemies. Shall we begin, Mr. Church? At your pleasure, Colonel. The disagreements between Aaron Burr and John Barker Church are political and personal. For one thing, they're members of opposing factions. For another, Church is married to a woman named Angelica Schuyler, the sister of Alexander Hamilton's wife, Eliza. For yet another, Burr defeated Church's father-in-law in the midterm election of 1791 and unseated him in the Senate. But for Aaron Burr, this isn't about family. This is a matter of honor. A few days back, Church used unguarded language in reference to Colonel Burr, accusing him of taking a bribe during his time in the U.S. Senate. Mr. Burke, are the pistols ready? Yes, Colonel. Distribute them straight away. As Burr prepares to assume his position, he notices Judge Burke fiddling with his pistol. In a hushed, apologetic tone, Burke whispers, I forgot the grease. Burke's eyes burn with frustration. He uses a special kind of bullet, a touch too small for his pistols. He told Judge Burke to coat them in greased leather to fix the issue. Noticing the commotion, Church steps forward. Is there something the matter? Burr's second calls out. No, no, Mr. Church. All is well. Burke leans into Burr's ear and whispers, Don't keep him waiting. Just take a crack as it is and I'll grease the next. After Burke distributes the pistols, Burr and Church stand back to back. They walk ten paces, turn to face each other, and raise their weapons. Burr's shot is way off. Church's is a direct hit, but the bullet ricochets off a button on Burr's coat. Filled with rage, Burr angrily loads his weapon for a second shot. He calls out to Church, Don't fret, sir. I never miss twice. From the look in his eyes, Church can tell Burr means it. Filled with fear, he steps forward and waves his arms. All right, all right, stop, please. As Burr lowered his weapon, Church delivered a heartfelt apology. He admitted to the unguarded language he had spoken and begged Burr's forgiveness. The two men shook hands, climbed onto their respective boats, and rowed back to Manhattan. Burr left the duel with his reputation as a man of honor fully intact. He would need it, because soon, Burr would set his sights on a different target, the White House. At the time of the Burr-Church duel, the nation's capital was still in Philadelphia, but construction on the new presidential mansion in Washington was nearly complete. 
the winner of the 1800 election would be the first president to occupy the White House for a full term. Aaron Burr was a man teeming with ambition. He felt the best path to the presidency was to do what John Adams had done, serve first as vice president. But to secure his seat at the table, Burr would have to help his party win an early contest in his home state, New York. The electoral map of 1800 was regionally divided. The 52 electors from the five New England states, Delaware and Maryland, were reliably Federalist. The 52 electors in the South and West were reliably Republican. That left three middle states up for grabs, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, and New York. In 1800, Pennsylvania was gridlocked over the process of choosing electors. If the issue wasn't resolved before the electoral vote in December of 1800, Pennsylvania would not be able to participate. In a letter written prior to the election, Jefferson explained the significance of this. If Pennsylvania does not vote, then New York determines the election. On January 18, 1800, Burr and Jefferson met privately. Burr laid out the political landscape of his home state. In the late 1790s, most states chose their presidential electors in one of two ways. In some states, citizens would vote directly for their electors through a popular vote, either district by district or through a winner-take-all method. In others, citizens would vote for their state legislators, and it would be they who chose the electors for their state. In New York, the state legislature made the decisions. This gave particular importance to the New York state elections in April of 1800. In the previous election, Federalists had secured a majority in the state house and the state senate. Burr had a plan to take those seats back and secure New York's 12 electoral votes for Jefferson. After his meeting with Burr, Jefferson wrote to James Monroe, In the new election which is to come in April, all will depend on the city. New York City was the country's most populous urban center. Manhattan controlled 13 seats at the state level. In the last state election, the Federalists had swept all 13. If Burr could take them back for the Republicans, he and Jefferson would have control of New York's electoral votes and possibly the presidential election. But to orchestrate a takeover of New York, Burr would have to go toe-to-toe with another power player in Manhattan, his longtime political foe and the leader of the Federalists, Alexander Hamilton. Hamilton was a powerful figure in national politics. In the spring of 1800, the former Treasury Secretary was the senior commander of the U.S. Army, a title he had received after the death of George Washington in December of 1799. Hamilton was both respected and feared, beloved and despised. In the election of 1796, Hamilton had schemed to put Southern Federalist Thomas Pinckney into office ahead of Adams and Jefferson. But his failed ploy had estranged him from Adams, and it had split the Federalist Party in two those loyal to Adams, and those loyal to Hamilton, a group called the High Federalists. As he had done four years prior in the 1800 contest, Hamilton would put forward another Pinckney man for president, Thomas's brother, General Charles Coatsworth Pinckney of South Carolina. Hamilton's strategy was simple. Stack the New York State Assembly with High Federalists loyal to Hamilton above all else. If Hamilton had the New York legislature in his pocket, he could control the electoral votes of New York and potentially hand the election to Pinckney. In the spring of 1800, as Hamilton put his plans in motion, he did not publicly break from President Adams. He was smart enough to know that an open fight with the president would only deepen the rift in the Federalist Party. So Hamilton would have to be discreet. 
Behind the scenes, he worked to deny Adams and Jefferson the White House and to rob Aaron Burr of his plans to flip his home state of New York. So, as they would many times during their political careers, in the 1800 state contest, Hamilton and Burr would collide again in Manhattan. Over the years, Aaron Burr had made many friends in New York. In 1799, he had helped secure the charter for the Manhattan Company, a holding firm, and a threat to the Federalist grip on New York's purse strings. By busting up the Federalist monopoly on banking, Burr had opened up massive lines of credit to entrepreneurs sympathetic to the Republican cause. In the spring of 1800, Burr set out to capitalize on the goodwill he had built. As Burr supporter Matthew Davis wrote, Mr. Burr is arranging matters in such a way as to bring into operation all of the Republican interests. If we carry this election, it may be ascribed principally to Colonel Burr's management and perseverance. Burr also put together a slate of popular and recognizable candidates for the legislature, mainly Revolutionary War heroes. A county committee convened and nominated every single name on Burr's list. He could have stopped there but he wanted the people's buy-in, too. So he called a local Republican caucus open to the public where the list was formally accepted. Next, Burr launched an unprecedented urban campaign, a grassroots effort that would be replicated for years to come. He divided New York into small districts and appointed committees to oversee each one, to canvass, to take polls, and to encourage voters to make their voices heard on Election Day. Burr called in favors he had earned by supporting the Manhattan Company charter and raised an incredible amount of money. Reportedly, Republicans spent $50,000 on the New York campaign, nearly a million dollars today, an unheard of number in its time. But Burr didn't just run the campaign. He took to the streets himself and made his case directly to the people. One newspaper observed, Many wonder that the ex-senator and would-be vice president can stoop so low as to visit every low tavern that may happen to be crowded with his dear fellow citizens, but the prize of success to him is well worth all the dirty work. Hamilton hit the streets too, though, shaking hands, making speeches, and drumming up support. In the run-up to the April election, one Federalist newspaper wrote, Citizens, choose your sides. You who are for French notions of government, for anarchy and misrule, support the dupes of the anti-federal junto. The night before the April election, one Republican paper urged its readers, the political happiness of America hangs suspended upon the fruit of the present occasion. Rise then, with energy and patriotic activity, in defense of those invaluable rights for which during the revolution you fought and bled. As voting began on April 29, 1800, the question of Britain and France would be front and center. As the polls opened, news reached Manhattan. A British ship, the HMS Cleopatra, had recently captured two American vessels. It was a bombshell that lit a fire under the Republicans and threatened to take the wind out of the sails of the Federalists. Did you know you can skip ads and promos like these and listen to all episodes of American Elections Wicked Game without interruption by subscribing at IntoHistory.com? And not only will you be getting the whole series ad-free and bingeable, but you also get access to over a dozen more incredible history podcasts also ad-free, like Her Half of History. Because even though Hillary Clinton may not have made history when she ran for president in 2016, there have always been women who seized power, spied for their country, created artistic masterpieces, even escaped slavery. Her half of history is perfect for all those who sat in history class and wondered, what were the women doing all this time? Because the answer is a lot. 
Get Her Half of History, Wicked Game, and many others ad-free at IntoHistory.com. Subscribe now at IntoHistory.com. Tired of ads and promos like these? Want to skip ahead to newer elections? You can listen to all episodes of American Elections Wicked Game without interruption by subscribing at IntoHistory.com. But not only that, you also get access to over a dozen more incredible history podcasts, also all ad-free. That includes the American Revolution podcast, a deep and thorough investigation of the times, people, and politics behind America's fight for independence. Also, the battles, because we can't start a new American nation without guns. And the American Revolution podcast tells the story of the revolution from beginning to end, from its origins in the French and Indian War, through the war itself, and on to the founding of the United States. Get American Elections Wicked Game, the American Revolutions podcast, and many others ad-free with bonus content at IntoHistory.com. Subscribe now at IntoHistory.com. It's April 29, 1800, at a polling center in the 7th Ward on the northern edge of Manhattan. The polls are busy. Standing amongst the crowd with a stack of pamphlets under his arm is a man named Henry Rogers, a wealthy landlord and a Republican operative. As droves of New Yorkers arrive to cast their votes, Rogers hands out pamphlets and calls out, Vote for liberty! Vote for freedom! Vote Republican! It's a diverse group, very different from the wealthy white merchants on the southern tip of Manhattan. The Seventh Ward's residents are workers, craftsmen, and farmers, a melting pot of immigrants, Europeans, and African Americans. Rogers knows that if Republicans can win northern Manhattan, they have a chance of taking the entire city and winning the state for Jefferson. But Rogers also knows that Alexander Hamilton and the High Federalists have been canvassing the Seventh Ward with pamphlets of their own. One of those pamphlets catches Rogers' eye. It's in the hands of a young carpenter who stands in line waiting to vote. Where'd you get that pamphlet, friend? The man gave it to me, sir, just this morning on my way to work. This man, was he wearing a suit? Yes, sir, a fine one. A banker, was he? Or a merchant, perhaps? Well, he didn't say, sir. What do you do, friend? I'm a carpenter. Why is a carpenter holding a rich man's pamphlet? You'd be better off using that paper to wipe sweat off your brow. Did you not hear the news? What news, sir? A British warship captured two American ships. They can't do that. They seem to think they can. And the man who gave you that pamphlet and the Federalist friends of John Adams have done nothing to dispel the Brits of that notion. Do you want to be a British subject, son? No, sir. Then damn the Federalists. Roger stuffs one of his pamphlets in the farmer's shirt pocket. Vote for the men who fought to secure our freedom from the tyranny of Great Britain. Vote Republican. Thank you, sir. I will, sir. As Rogers moves on to his next target, the young carpenter drops his Federalist pamphlet onto the pavement below. He reaches in his shirt pocket, pulls out Rogers' pamphlet, and starts to read. The Cleopatra story was a crushing blow to the Federalists. One Republican pamphlet read, Can it be possible that the Federal Party in this country are so blinded by party spirit that they cannot see the danger of close connection with that people? That people, meaning the British. The pamphlet continued, Let us go forward to our polls, give our suffrage to the men who once released us from the tyrannical yoke of Britain. Voting lasted for three days, from April 29th to May 1st. Burr placed Republican operatives like Henry Rogers at key polling centers in northern Manhattan, especially in the 6th and 7th wards. 
Each of these wards contained twice as many voters as the three wards on the southern tip of the island. And Burr's supporters drove people to the polls in wagons and carriages. They placed chairs at polling centers so voters had a place to sit and rest while they waited to vote. For three days, Burr pounded the pavement in the 6th and 7th wards. On the last day of voting, Burr's compatriot Matthew Davis wrote of him, This day has he remained at the pole of the 7th ward ten hours without interruption. But Hamilton, too, was relentless. The day after the election, a friend of Hamilton's wrote, Never have I witnessed such exertions. I have not eaten dinner for three days. In the end, though, it wouldn't be enough. Thanks to Burr's superior organization, the Republicans won all 13 seats in Manhattan, giving Jefferson control over New York's 12 electoral votes. John Adams was despondent. His wife Abigail wrote that what happened in New York was produced by the intrigue of two men. Burr had seized the lucky moment, and Hamilton had sowed the seeds of discontent among the Federalists. Hamilton was floored by the outcome, but he didn't give up. At a meeting in early May, Hamilton and a group of high Federalists came up with a plan. The Federalists had lost the State House, but they still had the governor's mansion. So Hamilton sought to use that to his advantage and reverse the damage from the state election. At Hamilton's urging, the high Federalists agreed to petition Governor John Jay and ask him to call a special session of the lame duck state legislature for only one purpose, to change the electoral rules and switch New York to a popular vote. A Republican newspaper, the Philadelphia Aurora, caught wind of the scheme and published a story calling it an extraordinary instance of the confirmed depravity of the Federalist faction. According to the Aurora, when one Federalist expressed concerns that the scheme might prompt civil violence, another responded that a civil war would be preferable to having Jefferson. Caught red-handed, Hamilton nevertheless pressed on. On May 7th, he wrote to Governor Jay, imploring him to take action. Hamilton warned Jay that Jefferson was no better than Napoleon. Hamilton insisted, in times like these in which we live, it will not do to be over-scrupulous. It's easy to sacrifice the substantial interests of society by a strict adherence to ordinary rules. Before filing the letter away, Governor Jay scribbled a note on the back of the letter, proposing a measure for party purposes which it would not become me to adopt. Jay would never respond to Hamilton's request. But in the spring of 1800, one state had changed its electoral rules to allow popular vote, Virginia. Around the same time as the New York election, the people of Virginia spoke with one voice and elected a full slate of pro-Jefferson electors. Aaron Burr reaped the rewards of his service to the party. On May 11th, Republican Party leaders, including 43 congressmen, met at a boarding house in Philadelphia to officially choose a presidential ticket. For fear of being labeled tyrannical, the Republicans conducted the caucus in secret. Jefferson played no part in the meeting, believing it was best to leave those arrangements to others. But at the National Caucus, party leaders nevertheless agreed to a Jefferson-Burr ticket. The meeting was the birth of the congressional nominating process that would come to be called King Caucus, a system Republicans would use until the election of 1824. A few days after the Republican meeting, the Federalists held a national caucus of their own. Unlike their counterparts, they made no attempt to conceal their activities, and they paid the price in the press. The Aurora called the caucus a fractious meeting, unknown to the Constitution or law. At the caucus, high Federalists and moderates came to an agreement. They would support John Adams and Charles Coatsworth Pinckney equally, 
meaning each elector would cast one vote for each man. But this was not an example of party unity. This was one step in a wily scheme, the brainchild of Alexander Hamilton. If every Federalist elector voted equally for Adams and Pinckney, and if Pinckney could steal the votes of his home state South Carolina away from Jefferson, he would have a legitimate chance of beating Adams and Jefferson. If Jefferson lost South Carolina to Pinckney, even with New York and Virginia already in his pocket, it would be nearly impossible for Jefferson to win. In May 1800, Hamilton wrote to a leader of his party, To support Adams and Pinckney equally is the only thing that can possibly save us from the fangs of Jefferson. But Jefferson quickly sniffed out Hamilton's scheme, calling it a hocus-pocus maneuver. Adams called it villainy. He retaliated by firing three pro-Hamilton cabinet members and disbanding the standing army Hamilton had worked so hard to preserve. While the two Federalist factions fought it out, Republicans pressed the attack. In the press and across the country, they went after Adams on a myriad of issues from his first term, including the Sedition Act. As a result of the so-called quasi-war with France, Federalists in Congress had greatly feared French influence on the homeland. To clamp down on national security, they had pushed for the Sedition Act, which made it illegal to use falsehoods to criticize the government. Adams signed it into law, though reluctantly. In June of 1800, a pro-Jefferson writer named James T. Callender was arrested, tried, and convicted for violating the Sedition Act with a pamphlet titled The Prospect Before Us. A Federalist judge sentenced him to nine months in jail and forced him to pay the fine of $200, almost $4,000 today. But while in jail, Callender ratcheted up the rhetoric and wrote a second volume of The Prospect. In a chapter titled More Sedition, he attacked Adams, calling him a fool, a rogue, and a tyrant. Callender would become a martyr for the Republican cause. His arrest was seen as a prime example of the tyranny of President Adams and the Federalists. With New York and Virginia in the hands of pro-Jefferson electors and the tide turning against him, John Adams had only one hope of beating Jefferson win enough electoral support in the South to keep his candidacy viable. So in the summer of 1800, John Adams took his case to the people. He mounted what might be called the first campaign tour in American political history. He spoke to a large crowd in Alexandria, Virginia. In his speech, Adams distanced himself from the high Federalists in his party, men like Alexander Hamilton. On the subject of France, Adams sought to prove he was not a pro-British warmonger. He advocated peace through neutrality. He tried to calm their resentments by acknowledging his mistakes. The Sedition Act was a thing of the past. The standing army had already been reduced. The threat of a war with France was over. Adams even tried to use Callender's words against him by ensuring the crowd of Virginians that the prospect before us is bright. But Southerners didn't buy it. After his trip to the South, a Federalist newspaper in Maryland would write, Mr. Adams will not be the next president. The article predicted... Charles Coatsworth Pinckney shall be the man. Hamilton had Adams back against the wall, and in the fall of 1800, he went in for the kill. Hamilton wrote a 54-page political pamphlet attacking Adams and circulated it privately to Federalist electors. Hamilton wrote of Adams, I should be deficient in candor were I to conceal there are great and intrinsic defects in his character which unfit him for the office of chief magistrate. But in October 1800, Hamilton's private pamphlet leaked to the press. As a result, many members of Hamilton's party turned their backs on him and his candidate, Charles Pinckney. The Republicans would reap the reward of Hamilton's impetuous mistake. The election of 1796 had produced a strange outcome. 
For the first and only time in American history, the president and vice president were elected from opposing political factions. In the election of 1800, the result would be even stranger. On December 3, 1800, electors from all 16 states met and cast their votes. Adams finished with 65, Pinckney with 64. South Carolina did not vote for their native son. Like the rest of the Republican electors, South Carolina voted equally for Aaron Burr and Thomas Jefferson, giving Burr and Jefferson 73 votes each. So for the first time in American history, the electoral process produced a tie. In keeping with the Constitution, the next president would then be decided by the House of Representatives. John Adams would not participate in the contingent election or the drama to come. He would quietly finish out his term before returning home to Massachusetts. He would be a casual observer to what he had once called the wicked game of election politics. But in the House of Representatives, that game would again be played by Aaron Burr and Alexander Hamilton. Did you know you can skip ads and promos like these and listen to all episodes of American Elections Wicked Game without interruption by subscribing at IntoHistory.com? And not only will you be getting the whole series ad-free and bingeable, but you also get access to over a dozen more incredible history podcasts, also all ad-free, like Wild West Extravaganza, a journey back to the fascinating, tumultuous, and often violent world of the American Old West, from famous outlaws like Billy the Kid and Jesse James, to lawmen like Wyatt Earp and Wild Bill Hickok, to trailblazing pioneers and frontiersmen, Wild West Extravaganza tells the true stories of the real-life characters who shaped this iconic era. So saddle up and discover the true history of the American frontier, the good, the bad, and the ugly, ad-free at IntoHistory.com. If you're a careful Wicked Game listener, you know in the credits I mentioned my friend Professor Greg Jackson and his podcast, History That Doesn't Suck. It's a great show. But one way it can doesn't suck even more is when you listen to it without ads. You can listen to all episodes of American Elections Wicked Game, all episodes of History That Doesn't Suck, and all episodes of many more great history podcasts without interruption by subscribing at IntoHistory.com. History That Doesn't Suck is a deeply researched chronological survey of American history from a trained academic who also knows how to tell a story. Plus, in addition to ad-free listening to one of the best American history podcasts out there, you get scores of bonus episodes at IntoHistory.com. Subscribe now at IntoHistory.com. In mid-December, long before the contingent election in the lame duck house, Jefferson wrote to James Madison predicting, there will be an absolute parity between the two Republican candidates. This has produced great dismay and gloom on the Republican gentlemen here and equal exultation in the Federalists. According to the Constitution, in the event of a tie, the House of Representatives would decide the election, with each state getting one vote. Jefferson was his party's most popular candidate, but the Federalists still controlled a handful of states in the House. That power could be used against Jefferson, and indeed schemes to deprive Jefferson of the presidency were already afoot. In December 1800, Aaron Burr wrote to Jefferson, my personal friends are perfectly informed of my wishes on the subject and can never think of diverting a single vote from you. But behind closed doors, Burr was playing a different game. He didn't openly court votes, but he didn't reject offers of support either. In December, one Maryland congressman wrote to Burr imploring him not to stand in Jefferson's way. Burr's response was equivocal. He would not pursue the presidency, but if the House picked him, 
he wouldn't step aside either. In a contingent election, each state casts one vote based on a majority of their congressional delegation. With 16 states voting, a clear majority of nine states was required for victory. The Federalists, though, controlled only six. They didn't have the power to elect a Federalist president, but they could decide the Republican winner, which gave a considerable amount of leverage and power to the Federalist congressman and their leader, Alexander Hamilton. The only question was who would the Federalists support? For Hamilton, the choice was complicated. He abhorred both men and greatly feared the direction the country was headed. So in the end for him, it was a choice between the lesser of two evils. He wrote that Jefferson at least had pretensions to character, but as to Burr, there was nothing in his favor. If there be a man in the world I ought to hate, it is Jefferson, but the public good must be paramount to every private consideration. But not everyone in his party agreed with Hamilton's assessment. For many Federalists, Burr was far less dangerous than the leader of the opposition. In December of 1800, Hamilton launched a letter-writing campaign. To one congressman, he wrote, Burr loves nothing but himself and would be content with nothing short of permanent power in his own hands. To another, he said, No mortal can tell what his political principles are. If he has any theory, tis that of simple despotism. Hamilton warned his party that if they supported Burr in a contingent election, he would have no choice but to withdraw from the party. When Congress counted the electoral ballots on February 11, 1801, they confirmed Jefferson's prediction. Burr and Jefferson were tied. The contingent election in the House was immediately triggered, and the clock was ticking. The House had until March 4th to select a president. If they failed to do it in time, the president pro tempore of the Senate would act as president. But the Senate didn't have a president pro tempore. As vice president, Jefferson had served that function. But it was unclear what would happen if the deadline was missed and the Adams administration expired, along with Jefferson's vice presidency. Many of Jefferson's supporters feared the Federalists might use the uncertainty to their advantage and try to run out the clock, installing one of their own as president. On the first ballot, Jefferson received eight votes. Burr received six. Jefferson was one vote short. There was no clear majority. Two states, Vermont and Maryland, could not reach a majority and did not vote. Over the course of five days, Congress would vote 35 times, each ballot producing a gridlock. On the 36th ballot, the decision would center around one man, Delaware Congressman James Bayard. It's February 1801 at a Federalist caucus in Washington. The congressional leaders of the Federalist Party have gathered to break the deadlock in the election of 1800. Delaware Congressman James Bayard listens intently as the debate rages inside the meeting hall. You've heard what the Republicans say of the good federal men in this room. They say we will refuse to yield our power, that Mr. Hamilton will resurrect the army and sack Washington. Uh, Hamilton's a bigger fool than Jefferson. <laughs> Gentlemen, this is no laughing matter. These so-called Republicans accuse us of tyranny and in the same breath threaten open rebellion against the government. Just today, I read in the papers that should this caucus not vote for Jefferson, 10,000 Republican swords will march on Washington. We'll let them come. Damn the Republicans and damn Thomas Jefferson. If we must suffer a Republican president, let it be Colonel Burr. Congressman Bayard rises to his feet and addresses the room. May I speak a word, gentlemen? I have voted with Mr. Burr on every ballot like a good federal man should. And yet, 
my conscience does here give me pause. I have received many correspondences over the past few weeks in regards to Mr. Burr's character. Gentlemen, Mr. Burr speaks with reverence of the French, with disdain of the financial system, and with utter contempt for the government of the people. No more than Mr. Jefferson. But Mr. Jefferson at least has principles, good sirs. Aaron Burr has only his own ambition and the floating passion of multitudes which will lead this country to our own destruction. Well, what would you have us do, Mr. Baird? We must vote, not for Mr. Jefferson, but for the Constitution. I believe, gentlemen, that a vote for Mr. Jefferson is a vote to save the Constitution from ruin. There's a moment of stillness as Baird's words land on the room. And then a lone voice from the back breaks the silence. Deserter! Deserter! Delaware was a tiny state, and James Bayard its lone congressman. This put him in a unique position. If Bayard changed his mind, so did Delaware. But what Bayard likely didn't tell his Federalist colleagues as they shouted him down was that he had been receiving correspondence from Alexander Hamilton. Hamilton was fully aware of Bayard's unique position. For weeks he had been writing him, imploring Bayard to turn away from Aaron Burr, and Hamilton's repeated appeals had the desired effect. After the caucus, Bayard approached a Virginia congressman, Republican John Nicholas. He told Nicholas he would support Jefferson, but only if Jefferson promised to support Hamilton's financial plan to keep the Navy in place and to appoint Federalists to positions inside the government. And not long after, Bayard received word from Jefferson through an intermediary. They had a deal. At noon on Tuesday, February 17th, on the final vote, Bayard handed in a blank ballot. Federalists in Maryland and Vermont rolled over, surrendering their votes to Jefferson and giving him a clear majority of 10. On March 4th, 1801, Jefferson was sworn in as America's third president. Aaron Burr was elected his vice president, and Delaware had nothing to do with it. Jefferson's ascension to the White House signified the end of an era of Federalist rule. Republicans now controlled the presidency and both houses of Congress. Jefferson would later call the election the Revolution of 1800. John Adams did not attend Jefferson's inauguration. On March 4, 1801, the morning of the ceremony, Adams left the executive mansion and caught a 4 a.m. coach to Baltimore, the first stop on his journey home to Massachusetts. He had spent most of his presidency in Philadelphia and his vice presidency before that in New York. He had only been in the White House for four months. On his first day there, Adams had remarked, May none but honest and wise men ever rule under this roof. The task of being honest and wise was now up to Thomas Jefferson for four years. At his ceremony, Jefferson stood before the large crowd in the Senate chamber and said, Every difference of opinion is not a difference of principle. We are all Republicans. We are all Federalists. But despite his public call for an end to partisanship, during his first term, Jefferson would rely heavily on partisan politics. In many regards, he would have little choice. In the election of 1804, Alexander Hamilton would again fight tooth and nail against him. But in the years to come, Hamilton's trickery and backroom dealings would cost him more than political power. In the election of 1804, Hamilton's past would come back with a vengeance and leave in its wake a trail of deceit, betrayal, and blood. 
This is Episode 4 of American Elections Wicked Game, 1800 Tiebreaker. On the next episode, the election of 1804, Thomas Jefferson fights to defend his presidency from the Federalists, the press, and a deeply flawed, if not broken, electoral system. Icebergs, jagged rocks and rocky straits, mutinies, misfortune, and broadside battles. There are more tales of the sea than survivors to tell them. But the podcast Shipwrecks and Sea Dogs is doing a good job, and you can listen to all episodes of that podcast plus many others, including American Elections Wicked Game, without interruption by subscribing at IntoHistory.com. Shipwrecks and Sea Dogs is one of my favorites from last year, a podcast about the greatest mishaps, misfortune, and misadventures of the sea. You'll hear stories of corruption, greed, bad intentions, and just plain horrible decision-making that resulted in some of the worst maritime disasters from all over the world. And some of these are more recent than you think. All episodes are ad-free, including bonus content and more, at IntoHistory.com. Subscribe now at IntoHistory.com. This episode contains reenactments and dramatized details, and while in most cases we can't know exactly what was said, all our dramatizations are based on historical research. American Elections Wicked Game is an airship production. Hosted, edited, and executive produced by me, Lindsey Graham. Sound designed by Derek Behrens. Music by Lindsey Graham. Co-executive produced by Stephen Walters in association with Ritual Productions. Written and researched by Stephen Walters. Fact-checking by Greg Jackson and C.L. Salazar from the podcast History That Doesn't Suck.